What is love? Specifically, what is romantic love? I'm Carla Nappi, and in this New Books Network seminar podcast, we're going to talk about a book that explores this question in beautiful, important, and really fascinating detail. The conversation that you're about to hear is a conversation with Carrie Jenkins about her new book, What Love Is and What It Could Be. This came out with Basic Books in 2017. Now, I should state right at the outset that Carrie is not only a colleague, but also one of my very, very favorite humans. She's just an incredible teacher, an incredible writer, and an incredible and generous human being. And all of this comes out, I think, really powerfully in the pages of her book. So what the book does is not only offer us a very, very thoughtful and carefully argued and really sparklingly and at some points very funnily written um, accounting of what love is and what it could be, but also it offers us a model of what philosophy is and what philosophy could be. And the book is very much um, about making these ideas and communicating these ideas, not just for professional philosophers, but also really for anybody who cares about these issues. It's written in a way that's extraordinarily accessible, um, and it's really genuinely a pleasure to read. So among the things that you'll hear us talking about are um, Carrie's ideas and her particular theory of love and romantic love specifically that she posits in the book and then goes on to argue. You'll hear us talking about some of her main interlocutors in the course of the book, um, including Bertrand Russell and Bell Hooks, um, Simone de de Beauvoir, among others. Um, You'll also hear some really interesting methodological reflections and critiques of kinds of evidence and attitudes toward evidence that shape some contemporary and historical theories of love. You'll hear um, some reflections on issues of gender, um, on issues of certain kinds of normativity, that structure, how we think about and also practice and embody romantic love. And the main take home at the end, and you'll hear us get to this at the end of the conversation, is not necessarily that listeners should adopt or adapt any particular vision, right, of what romantic love should be. Quite the contrary. The main take home message, and you'll find this at the end of the book, is to think about love for yourself. So this is an extraordinarily important book. It's beautiful. Um, it's also extraordinarily generous and thoughtful and sensitively written. Um, and so I can't say enough about it, but I will stop so that you can listen to Carrie talking about it, um, which is much more eloquent. So with that, I'll just say I hope you enjoy. Um, and thank you so much for listening and for the support of the channel that that listening entails. I'm here today to talk with Carrie Jenkins about her new book, What Love Is and What It Could Be. Welcome to the New Books Network seminar, Carrie. Thanks for making time to talk with me. Welcome to the podcast. And thanks for writing an awesome book and also being one of my favorite, favorite, favoritist colleagues at UBC and humans in general. Oh, shucks. Um, well, the feeling is entirely neutral. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. Of course. <laughs> so, Carrie, let's start with the kind of traditional question um, of the channel, which is, how did you come to work in philosophy? And what are you typically working on when you're not writing books about the philosophy of love? So I, I've been a philosopher for my entire adult life. Um, I actually was directed into philosophy by a high school teacher um, who just said, you know what you might like? Wow. Go read some stuff. Um, and she, she sent me to read some books. I was like, this is very, very cool. And I would like to study this, please, at university. And in the British system, which is where I was, you can study one subject through, all through undergraduate. So I studied philosophy all through undergraduate, did an MPhil, did a PhD, and then got some jobs. Um, so, um, you know, <laughs> it's all it's been all philosophy all the time since I was 18 years old. Um mm-hmm. And normally, so I've been working mostly in metaphysics and epistemology, so looking at questions about the nature of reality, um, the nature of knowledge, the nature of um, justified or justifiable belief, mm-hmm. um, and the connections between those two things, which are really important to me, um, between the world and what we know about it. Um, so that's been sort of my background. My first book was a monograph on arithmetical knowledge, so how we know um, just very simple arithmetic, like two plus two equals four. How do you know that? 
um, it turns out that's a much bigger problem than <laughs> um, a lot of people realize until they start thinking about it for a minute. And then, you know, you're going to get this, this sort of sense of vertigo. Hang on a second. How actually do I know that? Um, and yeah. even when you try to trace it back to, well, somebody taught me that, um, you know, they have, then you just push the question back onto how someone else knew it. And somehow you've got to get back to something more fundamental. So I have a theory about where that ultimately comes from um, mm-hmm. that um, we don't need to go into right now. But that was the nature of my first book. Um, and it didn't have much to do with love at all. <laughs> so let's talk about this book. How did you come to write this book, Carrie? What was the genesis of this project as a book? So what was going on there was um, sometimes I call it a convergence and sometimes a sort of smushing together or sometimes a crashing together, depending on how I'm feeling about it, between my work and my professional life, my philosophy and my personal life, my life life. Um, And in particular, I was, um, so I am polyamorous. I'm in two romantic relationships. Um, And around the time that I started to be open about being non-monogamous in a non-monogamous relationship, um, I started realizing that one of the forms of pushback against that, and there are many forms, but one of the forms was people saying that's not possible. Like you say you're in love with more than one person, but love, if you really were in love with someone, you could not feel anything for someone else. That's not how love works. That's not what being in love means. It has to be monogamous, has to be for one person. Um, So one of the first things that I heard was a philosophical claim the nature of romantic love is like this and it can't be any other way um and so that um coming at that with my background interest in metaphysics the nature of reality what is real and what's not what's natural and what's not how much of the world is projected by us and how much of it is discovered by us um all i could hear there from the you know apart from the obvious implied criticisms of me what i could hear there was a really deep philosophical issue Um, and so I just started wondering can I apply the tools that I have the critical thinking tools the argumentative tools the theoretical tools that I have from my background working in metaphysics and other areas to the question of what love is can it help me understand what people are doing when they say that and you know um, the reason the book ended up being called what love is and what it could be is because of that connection with possibility that people were trying to say it can't be any other way than what I think it is. Um, You can't be in love with two people. And they didn't just mean it's wrong. They meant it's not possible, right? You can't, there's no such thing. Um, And so the second part of the title of my book is directed right at that kind of claim. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Um, And the way you're relating that is actually really important in terms of the kind of work that the book does, um, among other things, one of the really clear points that comes out right at the beginning of the book is that language matters. How we talk about things matters. Mm-hmm. Um, both, I mean, for lots and lots of reasons, but it's not at all, um, at least from my experience as a reader of the book, right? And that's the only perspective I can speak from, but it's not at all a simple or unimportant thing when people speak about something in a certain way and you're hearing that as a result. I mean, this has profound implications and is really, really important. Um, Yeah. And so I end up saying it's actually part of the process of um, constructing social reality, right? So the ways that we represent love, the kinds of, for example, love stories that we tell, the kinds that we consume, the kinds that we find to be romantic, and I'm doing air quotes here, although <laughs> listeners can't see them, big air quotes around romantic, the kinds of stories that we think of that way shape um, the norms that then govern what we expect from a romantic relationship, what we expect romantic love to be and to look like. And that feeds very directly into our ideas about what's possible for mm-hmm. love. Um, and it's not just that we get um, a theory that way, right? It's not just that we, we think love is like that or we think that's what romance is. We're actually making romance into this thing or romanticness into this thing. Um, I mean, and, and that's, I'm getting a little bit ahead of where we are right that's now, it. but this is, this is a big part of um, my, what ends up being ultimately my theory, um, which is that love has a partly socially constructed nature, at least romantic love does. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that has a lot to do with this, um, these questions about how we're representing, how we're speaking. Um, and it all starts from, yes, exactly this thought that the words are not just uh, 
um, a surface level phenomenon. They're, they're much, much more than that. So even though the book is also um, a, a book that comes from a practice of analytic metaphysics, this is also a book that's firmly in your work as a metaphysician. This is quite different, right, from the kind of, or the audience for the book is going to be quite different from the audience, I would imagine, for a book on philosophy of arithmetic, right, or philosophy of mathematics. So given that, um, what's the response to the book been like so far, Carrie? I mean, it's only been out for a little while, but um, yeah, what's the response been like and how's that been for you? Yeah, and so the response has been um, every way that I could have imagined and so many more as well. Um, and, and it's been intense and it's been intensely everything. It's been intensely wonderful and intensely painful and in some ways really awful, um, in other ways really just, um, you know, gratifying and, and um, valuable um, and there's no, there's actually no separating those parts out from one another as well. So let me explain. So for example, um, I, so I talk openly in the book about my own situation, the fact that I'm polyamorous. Um, and this has also been uh, a theme in, in how I've um, talked about the book in um, the media and um, publicizing, um, and it comes up in reviews a lot. Um, and so a lot of people are now, um, finding tracking me down online to send me really abusive messages about that um and some of them are are really not some are quite violent some of them are quite you know scary to read um others are just really upsetting because of the amount of um, misogyny um and actually i i this one i didn't even i should have predicted but i didn't racist my partners mm -hmm. i have um a partner who is asian and partner is half asian half white um and so a lot of the um uh, really vitriolic trolling that I get is is also um, a way that I'm now bearing witness to forms of racism that as a, a person moving through the world as a, a white person, I haven't really had to see a lot of in such a direct way before. So that's been eye-opening. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, just the fact that it's it seems as if being in the public sphere in a way that normally I haven't been in the past writing my my academic metaphysics for academic metaphysicians um, has uh, just given a, a kind of channel to a lot of people who want to send me that kind of um, message um, which is horrible and also enlightening because you know the, the way you find out what is happening in the world how the world perceives something um, is to be open to it and that does include being open to things that are painful and horrible. Um, and, and then, so, you know, so that's all going on. And at the same time, um, I'm getting a chance to have a, a kind of platform that I could never have imagined that I might've been able to have. Um, so I had an interview in um, Vox recently. Um, I've been contacted by reporters from like, you know, major media outlets, um, Reggie Watts. I don't know if you know Reggie oh, yeah. Watts and tweeted out that he really liked my book. Um, and, and I got a message on Instagram from Offbeat Bride saying that, you know, they really like my book. And this is just not something that has ever happened to me in my like academic career before. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm doing something that feels very different here. I have a very different kind of voice in the book than I have in my other um, academic facing work. Um, so it's just, you know, it's been a really completely different experience and, and the reactions have been, you know, honestly overwhelming um, in lots of ways. The reviews have been the same. So um, I have lots of really nice reviews that I love. Um, and then also a couple of really angry sounding reviews um, that seem to directly contradict what the, the really optimistic ones say. So again, I'm kind of getting this sense of every reaction to the book is happening which is very, very interesting for me to watch and partly reminds me of something that I, I learned from you in a sense that you made me realize this in a way I never had before, um, that reading a book is part autobiographical um, reading. So one reads oneself by reading a book. And so when I read these, um, um, these various reactions and reviews, what I'm reading is his what I personally felt while I read your book, Carrie. <laughs> this is what the experience was like for me when I read your book, Carrie, um, which is fascinating for me. Um, but, it, you know, at the way that you've put it, I think, in some of the Arts One lectures that I've really admired is that there's not one thing there that is the book. Um, mm -hmm. There is everybody's book, everybody's version of the book. Um, and, you know, this mm -hmm. has just really brought it home to me in a very different way. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things um, that really, for me, again, as a reader and my version of the book that comes out of that, 
um, that's really important methodologically is that you're making the point at various um, moments of the book that in cases where we're talking about and trying to think and write about problems like this, love, but also other problems, right? Lots of other problems. Who we are as people is necessarily going to be part of how we think. Like our experiences are necessarily going to be part of how we think and how we write about what it is that we think and write about. And so the fact that you're actually bringing your life into this, I just want to make listeners aware that from my perspective, that's not just about, I'm going to make this more um, easily accessible for people. It's not just about, I'm making a decision to put myself out there. It's also a methodological claim that's being borne out by the shape of the book and the form of the book. So it's importantly like part of the analytic work that the book is doing. That's right. And um, it's really, uh, there's been a, tr- a tradition or a trend perhaps in certain areas of analytic philosophy to imagine that one can totally avoid that, um, that one can write, again, I'm doing my big air quotes here, objectively and or, and or as if from no perspective or as if taking the universal perspective. Um, and not just in philosophy, I know lots of other disciplines are prone to this too, but you know, I notice it there because I'm so familiar with it. Um, and what I quite often see happening is not, of course, that the person's not being influenced by who they are as a person, but that they're not aware of that influence. So one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is um, say, and I say actually right up front as soon as the book starts, who I am and where I'm coming from with the subject, because you can't really, you know, I can't disentangle that from the biases that I have, the the views that I have, um, things that won't strike me as natural. Um, and again, here's my air quotes, <laughs> things that won't strike me as natural, but might strike someone else as natural because my experiences are not like that other person's experiences of the world. Um, so yes, I mean, it is, it is not just about wanting to talk about my own life. In fact, I don't really like the fact that I, it's, it's, um, I've put it this way sometimes. Like I, I, I really wished that there could have been a way to write a book like this without perhaps even having my name on it, right? If I could have done this um, under a pseudonym um, then and, and then just sort of hidden personally from, from the world while the book was mm-hmm. out there. But I don't think there was any possible version of this book that could have looked like that yeah. because it is a book that is um, about me struggling through an area of philosophy with a purpose mm-hmm. in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, to write anything else would have been a lie or, you know, just a concealment of, of that fact. Um, and I see that kind of concealment happening in a lot of other people's work. Um, and I think it's I think it's dangerous and I think it's a misrepresentation mm-hmm. of reality and of the writing and the thinking process. So. Um, you know, it, it's the way it is because I didn't really have any other choice, not because I like um, being out there. I, I actually feel I'm a very introverted person mm-hmm. um, by default. And, and mm-hmm. so actually going and um, going into um, a lot of uh, public spaces to put the book there is quite painful for me personally, but I want the book there. Mm-hmm. So I will run out and put it there and then, you know, run away as soon as I can. Yeah. <laughs> So let's get right into it, right? Let's start exploring some of the chapters for listeners. Um, so the book, I'll just lay a little bit of a foundation and then we'll, um, we'll start diving in. The book poses and explores a major question. What is romantic love? And this is right um, at the outset in the prologue. Um, you say also in the prologue, romantic love is in the process of changing. And um, along those lines, the norm of monogamy could be one of the features in flux. And what we'll see is the book is going to establish and sequentially develop an argument that by the end of the book is going to get us back to these claims and back to this question. We'll see kind of what... Um, the particular theory that you're proposing is going to do to help us explore, start to think about what it would be to answer um, a question like this and use it to think about how we might live, um, right? This isn't just about a philosophical problem, even though it is deeply about a philosophical problem. So you call the book an exercise in critical thinking out loud, and we'll sort of explore what that means over the course of the conversation. We've talked about the fact that you mentioned that language matters, and also right at the outset, the book makes really clear that um, it really matters. The stakes are high. Um, Early in the book, I think in the introduction or somewhere, um, but um, here's a quote. 
um, you say it's a disaster. We're basing some of the key decisions of our lives on something we treat as an inexplicable mystery. Why aren't we more worried about this? So this is to say it matters, right? The stakes are very high. Okay, um, so the book, I'm going to, um, spoiler alert for listeners, I'm going to give you a spoiler here. What the book is going to do is offer, among other things, a theory of love. The main idea is that romantic love has a dual nature, both a social and a biological nature. And we'll see how that plays out um, in the rest of the hour to come. Okay, so one of the things um, that for me um, was really striking about the work that the book does is it is um, taking on working with, moving beyond, but sometimes moving alongside the work of a number of key interlocutors. Um, and some of these are raised right um, in the earliest pages of the book. So one, so I'm gonna ask you to talk a little bit about some of them as we explore. Um, one of the first interlocutors who comes up is Bell Hooks. Mm -hmm. So Carrie, could you start taking us in um, to the book by telling us a little bit about what aspects um, briefly of Bell Hooks's work have been most formative for you in shaping how you're, uh, the work that you're doing in the book? Yeah, so there's, there's, there's the, the sort of first main answer and then there's the everything else. Um, so the first main answer is that, um, so Bell Hooks has a trilogy of books about love, um, the first of which is um, the one that was most influential to me personally. It's called All About Love. And um, in that book, early in that book, like I think it's even in the first chapter or two, she gets into the fact that we are treating love as something impossible to define, something impossible to get a handle on. And she explains how deeply troubling that is because it means um, that we are... Um, as we go through the world trying to love and or find love, um, we're sort of groping in the dark because we don't know what we're looking for. Um, and she says um, that what we need is to um, to give love words. Um, that's her, her way of putting it. Um, she then says we need a definition of love to um, solve this problem. Um, so now I follow her almost all of the way there, but I do stop short of saying that we should aim for a definition um, one of the reasons being that I don't think love, at least in its romantic form, is tidy enough for something like a definition. That to me sounds like we're aiming for an inaccurate level of tidiness. Um, but I think a theory is um, what I like to call, you know, what I have. Um, so I think a theory is possible and understanding is possible and understandings that can move us forward in important ways are possible. Um, so she was one of the people that like, really got me into the frame of mind of thinking, we need clarity, um, we need to give love words, we need to give it a, a shape that we can understand, something to get hold of, rather than thinking of it as just mysterious, something that we should not, quotes overthink, um, that, that we should switch off our critical faculties and just let it happen. Um, and I, I liken it a little bit, that attitude, this thought that we should just let it happen and it's all good, um, to the uh, the feminine mystique. So um, there's a connection that I make um, to earlier feminist work where the idea of um, womanhood or femininity as something that we couldn't really understand, but it was very special and magical and close to nature, um, that whole bundle of ideas it's a very disempowering ideology, um, and the idea behind it is you're supposed to just accept your feminine nature and um, find joy in nurturing and maternal love because that's what you are for. Um, and if you try to challenge that, you're going against nature, and you can't really understand it anyway. So there's no point trying. And all that stuff is um, I see a very similar pattern of ideas and ideologies applied to love, um, and so. I call that the romantic mystique. That's my, my name for that, for obvious reasons. And this idea that love's very magical, but very incomprehensible. Um, and we can't challenge it, right? If, if that's how we're thinking of it, that's, that's, it makes it immune to critique. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's a very dangerous and disempowering set of ideas. Um, and, you know, Bell Hooks um, was really the person who set me on that trajectory towards um, not only understanding the dangers of refusing to understand love, um, but also in some ways to seeing, to drawing out that connection between those attitudes to love and those attitudes to gender. Um, so she is a feminist author. She's writing a lot about gender in her work, as well as a lot about love. Um, 
And um, you know that that connection um, was something that I, I saw myself as kind of inspired to make by reading her work. So another interlocutor who comes up um, very early on in the book takes us into the sequential development of this theory. Um, so the first chapter takes us into biological explanations for what love is. Um, and the work of Helen Fisher specifically mm-hmm. is really important to this. So Helen Fisher um, writes about and works on love as a biological phenomenon. And you talk about two important aspects of this um, that come out of her work. The idea that love is a kind of biological drive and the importance of its evolutionary history. So Carrie, can you talk a little bit about um, what animates your work from Helen Fisher's work? Yes. Um, so this is this is a complicated one for me. So my relationship to Helen Fisher's work is is complex. Um, she is uh, someone who wants to say that romantic love is a, as a 100% biological phenomenon, um, and it is something that's evolved in us as a species for a specific purpose. Um, she separates it out from two other related phenomena, lust on the one hand, sex drive, and something that she calls attachment on the other. And she locates it as some, you know, somewhere in between those two. Um, and she thinks of it as something that's evolved to promote um, relatively stable pair bonding between male and female individuals uh, for long enough to sort of get a child through infancy, right? Um, and it's she thinks of it as involving monogamous focus on one other individual in order to promote that sort of nuclear family structure for the um, uh, raising of, of biological offspring. Okay, so that's her picture of why love evolved. And then what she ends up saying that it is is uh, a basic fundamental human drive, rather like um, hunger or thirst, something like that. And she says you can um, you can see it uh, operational by um, doing, um, she does a lot of fMRI scans of um, people who are reporting intense love, for example, having recently fallen intensely in love. Um, and so she, she locates certain um, patterns in uh, regions of the brain that are active in those individuals more so than in others. Um, and she understands this as evidence for the involvement, the heavy involvement of dopamine in that right. process. Mm-hmm. Um, and she says that's part of the evidence that it's a fundamental human drive because dopamine is also involved in those uh, in the regulation of those other things too. So, I mean, you know, she's she's worked, she's a serious scientist. Um, she's a very um, public-facing figure, um, as well as being a biological anthropologist. She's also... Um, an uh, advisor to Match.com, um, the online dating service. Um, she's got <laughs> TED Talks with, you know, so many hits that you can't possibly not take her seriously as a theorist of love, a contemporary theorist of love having a major influence on our contemporary thinking. So um, so I do take her very seriously as a theorist. Um, but um, I have some fairly serious disagreements with her as well, um, not all of which are exactly where you might think. So I, I do think romantic love is ultimately partly socially constructed, but I think it is also partly biological. And I don't deny anything about the reality of what she's seeing in those fMRI scans. Um, and I don't deny that something very importantly related to our evolutionary history is happening there, what she's seeing biologically. So I want to pick up a lot of her Mm -hmm. claims, um, but then resist some of what I see as the problematic developments of them into philosophical theories. Um, We could talk about that too if you want. We totally could. So I could talk about that with you for another hour. Um, I don't know if listeners who are not historians of science and medicine might be quite as interested in that, but one of the things... Um, I will mention a couple of the elements of the analysis in this chapter that really struck me um, as being particularly interesting and effective and important. Um, the uh, the book itself, in its engagement with Helen Fisher's work, does uh, bring out the ways in which this account of the evolutionary origin of love is, in the words of the book, infused with norms around gender, reproduction, heterosexuality, and monogamy in ways that are actually um, or pointing this out, I think, is really helpful um, insofar as it's it can be very difficult for both um, scholars and just people in the world who are trying to figure out how to deal with 
scientific information coming at them to figure out um, how to critically engage, right? So both um, being able to look at evolutionary or accounts of evolutionary history and say, look, there are ways in which the stories that we tell as scientists or about science are also um, statements and as statements and attitudes, right? They're infused with kinds of norms and biases like any other sorts of statements. And it's, it's important at least even to recognize that. Um, but also in, a, in addition to pointing out, as we talked about before, that theories about love are necessarily influenced by a theorizer's personal experiences. And we talked about that. Um, I really appreciate here the way you are critically engaging with scientific theories by looking carefully at the nature of the evidence that's proposed. And so this is not science says this, let's decide whether we agree just because it's science. This is let's look at the evidence that's behind these or that's undergirding these theories and use that as a basis for not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but right. Um, seeing how we can work with this. That's exactly the idea. And so, you know, there's no, there's no question in my mind that there's something going on in people's brains and that Helen Fisher is like one of the best people in the world to investigate that and tell us what it is. I mean, it's not just her. She's working in collaboration with a lot of colleagues, but she is one of the main popularizers of this stuff. Mm-hmm. So she is one of the best people in the world to do that. Um, but when she goes beyond interpreting those, um, those findings and starts to say things like, um, you know, that the, the evolutionary purpose of romantic love is heterosexual, biological, monogamous reproduction in basically the nuclear family structure that is normatively familiar to us right now. I see a claim that's gone far beyond what you can see on an fMRI scanner. <laughs> um, no matter how many brains you've scanned, right? That's that's gone f- much much further than that, um, and it's also gone further than even if you were to look at um, the historical records, right? So one of her her suggestions is that ultimately the root of romantic love is female neediness, right? So we, our, our female ancestors, we became a bipedal species and then they have to carry the babies in their arms. So they are, uh, instead of on their backs, right, when they were able to walk on four legs, so they're in their arms, now they are helpless and they can't hunt and they can't forage. So they d- depend on a male provider and the father of their offspring to look after them. And mm-hmm. that is why romantic love evolved, to bond mother and father together. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that is something as a theory that's gone way, way, way beyond the evidence. And in fact, if you look at um, you know, historians and archaeologists have told us the baby sling was invented <laughs> earlier than the point at which Helen Fisher says romantic love was evolving in our species. So, you know, there's got to be more to it than female neediness and arms full of babies. You know, there's, there's more to it than that, whatever else is going on. <laughs> so, so thank you, Carrie. <laughs> um, so after this chapter, which looks at one side of what's going to be um, this dual theory, we move to the, uh, a chapter that looks at the other side of what's going to become this dual theory. And this is a chapter that discusses the theory that love is a social construct. Um, now, in saying that love is a social construct, the book is very careful at making clear that social constructs are not mere social constructs. They have real effects. They're not fantasies or fictions. And you look um, in particular at the work of two psychologists who talk um, a lot about love as a social construct. And I'm not going to ask you to talk in detail about that now entirely um, because of the time. Um, But you do make a point here that I think recurs later in the book that um, reminds us we're not just talking about love here. We're talking about romantic love. Mm -hmm. And romantic love is importantly set apart from other kinds of love. And partially that has to do with its distinctive social function. Mm -hmm. Um, So could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so um right, this is this is about trying to understand um the the romantic in the phrase romantic love. Um mm-hmm. part of what's happening there is that sometimes um the romantic kind is being privileged and prioritized over every other kind of love. It's supposed to be something really special that a life is aimed towards and an, and a life that fails to find it or involve it is somehow lacking or deficient. Um so that this is an attitude that I I 
um, I use the label which I borrowed from another philosopher, Elizabeth Brake, for amato normativity, mm -hmm. um, um, meaning you know this normative idea that romantic love is supposed to be what you are ultimately finding or what's the the most satisfying thing in your life. Um, so that's one kind of element of the social function. It's supposed to be the goal or guiding point for a good life. Mm -hmm. um, and then you can look more specifically at what it is supposed to do in that good life. So, um, and you can actually get most of this from the playground rhyme, um, the, you know, the K-A-S-S-I-N-G rhyme. So think about what that teaches children. So-and-so and so-and-so, usually it's boy plus girl, sitting in a tree, K-A-S-S-I-N-G, First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes baby in a baby carriage. It's basically Helen Fisher's theory of what romantic love is and what it's for. And um, so we learn a lot there, right? Two names. Uh, one of them is usually a boy's name. One of them is usually a girl's name. Hetero. Um, monogamous. Only two. Um, first comes love. Right After the kissing, so there's some physical intimacy. There's, then there's love. Then marriage. Then reproduction. Okay, so that's, that's giving you most of the... Um, you can think of it as like the teleological purpose of romantic love right there in that little rhyme. Um, and although, of course, in many ways as adults, we become more uh, sophisticated and have more of a kind of um, um, uh, circumspect take maybe on what love is and what it's for, that idea never really goes away. <laughs> um, and that ends up being the same story that we tell over and over and over again on um, TV, in movies, in Romantic stories, right? Boy meets girl permanently, forever. Marriage, mm -hmm. children, settle down. Yeah. Um, and, and the ultimate result of that is a society shaped into basically nuclear family units, right? Which is what we um, are familiar with, mm -hmm. at least what I'm familiar with around me here and now in Vancouver in 2017 and most of the rest of the places that I've lived across my lifetime. Right. And we have the baby carriage, which, of course, we've got a whole, like, commodity <laughs> fetishism there. Like, let's throw capitalist uh, economy oh, in yeah, there. Oh, yeah, you've got to buy something. Because things are important, <laughs> right? Or else it's not real. Um, okay. okay, so when, when you set this up in Chapters 1, Chapters 2, and then we move to um, a chapter that looks at discussions um, about love that other philosophers have had. And we're not going to be able to talk about this in, in any kind of real detail, um, but I just want listeners to know that chapter three really covers a lot of ground that we won't have a chance to get to in detail. However, um, one of the people you talk about here is seems really important as a fulcrum for the book, and this is Bertrand Russell. Yes. Um, so Carrie, can you talk about the significance of of Russell for the project. Uh, there's so much <laughs> I know, to I know we could say talk about, about him this forever. Right? He is someone. Yeah. So I often describe him as um, one of my inspirations, um, and then I always follow that up with inspiration is complicated. <laughs> um, Russell is not my hero um, by any means, but what he did in his work and his life. Um, has been in many kind in too many ways for me to to feel really entirely comfortable about it. Actually, a mirror of what I find myself doing in my work and my life. So he started off. He worked in he trained in Cambridge in Trinity College. That's the college where I studied. Um, he started out working in the philosophy of logic and mathematics um, and language and. Um, other sort of very traditional analytic metaphysics and epistemology. In fact, he was really a founder of the analytic tradition, which I studied and um, grew to know and love as a, a student. Um, and then sort of a little later in his career, he started writing books for a broader audience, including very controversial work on love, marriage and sexuality. So he wrote a book in 1929 called Marriage and Morals, um, where he argued for open marriages. Um, he argued for a lot of things um, that people didn't like at the time, including more comprehensive sex education, a lot of like, destigmatization of attitudes to sex and sexuality in general. Um, but the thing I think that was really on a lot of people's minds with that book was this openness, his, um, his emphasis on non-monogamy as, uh, in fact, for him as a new norm. So he wanted this to be the model for everybody's marriage, as far as I could tell. Um, and it was marriage still for him. He wasn't really talking about relationships that wouldn't lead to marriage. Um, so anyway, so Bertrand Russell 
uh, in that book is trying to use his critical thinking skills, which are, you know, he's, he certainly has those. Um, he's an amazing philosopher. His, his work in, um, in most areas of philosophy is, is, you know, is stellar and is um, epoch making. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't say any of those sorts of words lightly about anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, his work, however, in um, the public domain was what won him a Nobel Prize. So he did not get that for Philosophia Mathematica or for his, his um, massive contributions to the philosophy of logic. Um, he got it for his public-facing stuff, including this work on love. Um, and in the Nobel um, Award speech, it was mentioned very specifically that a lot of what he's doing in his work um, excites protest. Um, that's the, the phrase that gets used, excites protest. And it's mentioned that, that Russell sees this as one of the most urgent tasks of an author. Um, and it's even commented as well that this is unlike many other philosophers. Um, and in so many ways, so much of that rings true still for me right now. So um, I feel unlike many other philosophers in taking... Uh, a work like this that, that, I'll be honest, it certainly does excite protest and some of it's very, you know, we talked about that right at the beginning, some of it's very unpleasant. Um, for much the same reasons, I think, that some of Russell's work excited protest, taking it into um, the public dimension um, beyond the academy um, and then, but really trying to use the, the critical, the analytical skills the best that one can, right? Um, that one has to to use uh, to to really understand these um, these phenomena a little better, um, and not only to understand them abstractly, but to understand them in one's own life and to understand them as a a human being. And it was reading *Marriage and Morals* that made me understand Russell as a human being. Although I was very familiar with a lot of his other work in various parts of the, my mm-hmm. discipline before that, I, I only thought of him as you know the abstract figure that stood behind these words on this page. Um, And I read this book, I was like, oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. A person who fell in love, a person who fell in love with more than one person at the same time, a person who then wrote a book about it and challenged, um, you know, this was 1929, you know. Um, So um, he's very inspirational to me in in all of these ways, um, including sometimes um, finding comfort myself in the fact that he got so much pushback for saying, what he said in his time. Well, let's move from Bertrand Russell to mm-hmm. Captain Kirk um, <laughs> for a moment. Um, so after setting up um, the um, not just the existing arguments about biological natures of love and social natures of love and then putting it in context in terms of a broader philosophy of love, you bring us into your dual nature theory. So um, in chapter four, and this is what chapter four is all about, uh, love has a dual nature. And here's what the, the chapter says. It is ancient biological machinery embodying a modern social role. And you use an illustrative metaphor of an actor playing a role on a TV show. And so this is where um, William Shatner playing Captain Kirk comes into the conversation. So briefly, Carrie, um, can you just uh, talk a little bit about or like translate that um, theory for listeners? Yeah, and so this is where I'm trying to understand. So in my first two chapters, I've talked about there being a biological reality and there being a socially constructed element. And then, you know, getting that far is actually quite easy. All you have to do is go read some, you know, people saying these things. The challenge is then how can they both be right? How can love be both biology and society, um, given that we're not assuming that biological reality is itself a social construct, um, which, you know, that's a, that's a different kind of theory than the one I'm proposing. <laughs> Um, so what I end up saying is, yes, you can you can mesh these two things together if you're prepared to, to think of it in the way that you would think of an actor playing a role in a show. So when you look at the screen and you say, who's that guy? Um, it's right to say it's William Shatner, and it's also right to say it's Captain Kirk, right? Um, what kind of thing you might be interested in at different times depends on you know what you're doing, what kind of conversation you're having. Um, and so I want to say, look, romantic love is like this. It's right to point at it and say, yes, there's biology. That's that's what's happening there. There is brain chemistry. There is dopamine. There's oxytocin. There's all the other. There's adrenaline. There's everything that's going on inside people's brains and their bodies more generally. Um, and it has an evolutionary history um, of some kind, not, I think, the specific kind that Fisher describes, but some kind. 
Um, but there's also this socially constructed um, script, and I, you know, I, I use that word very deliberately for what that love is supposed to look like, what a romantic love relationship is supposed to do, and that's where the first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes baby and a baby carriage part um, comes in that shapes the script. It doesn't change the biology, mm-hmm. but it shapes the script. Um, and so um, I'm trying to think of love as sort of you know this ancient biological machinery, as I put it, is kind of like the actor. Um, We ask it, or we expect it, or in some cases demand of it, that it play this role, that it conform to the script in a show called Modern Society. (laughs) Um, And then, for me, most of the really interesting philosophical questions take off from how good is that casting decision? (laughs) And for whom is it good? Who's it benefiting? Great. And this is actually um, a set of questions that is developed or uh, encountered or plays out for the rest of the book in different ways. Right. So from this, so we'll be able to talk about a little of that um, before um, before we close. So in the next chapter after this, you talk about some of the problems, actually, um, that speak to or that remind us of some of the stakes of this conversation, right? Um, Chapter 5 talks specifically, among other things, about the problem of biological determinism that's inherent in this idea, lover's going to love, right? (laughs) Now, this has all kinds of implications, including implications for the ways in which ideas about love impact the law and the penal code, right? Permitting leniency under some circumstances and excusing violence under some circumstances. So can you talk a little bit about um, these ideas of biological determinism and the consequences here? Yeah, so I mean, really here I'm getting into a discussion that's related to the idea of a crime of passion or um, a defense on the grounds of provocation, um, where that is being used um, as it has historically been like most often used um, or statistically very heavily used to excuse um, violence, sometimes lethal violence by men against women who were unfaithful or who they thought were unfaithful or other men that they thought um, these women were being unfaithful with. Um, so, you know, provocation because my wife was seeing another man um, used as an, as an um, exculpatory um, claim to um, avoid a murder charge and get a manslaughter conviction instead, that kind of situation. Um, those sorts of uses are very, very recent history in places where I talk about in the book. So I think it was only in the 90s that a change was made in the UK um, to stop that kind of thing from happening. Um, and the claim was made at the time that it was done to prevent this situation of um, women being killed by their husbands and then being blamed for it, right? So their behavior, their totally legal behavior being used as uh, justification for, for killing them. Um, this goes way, way back to um, something that we haven't really talked about so much yet, the origins of a lot of our current perceptions of what's natural, and again, I'm using my air quotes here, in romantic love, um, in the idea of patriarchal possession of women as literal property um, initially, and then more figurative property gradually over time. Um, this, this idea ultimately has its roots in legal language that talks specifically about the violation, the highest violation of property um, being the... Um, the uh, usage of your woman, if you are um, the husband in that situation. Okay, so um, this is one of the the ways in which I think the idea that it's somehow natural or a biologically determined um, feature of romantic love to feel this kind of deep possessive rage um, when things don't go the way you want um, is really dangerous. And um, I'm talking about it partly just in order to bring it into view, to bring it to light, um, but also partly as a, um, an illustration of the ways in which gender and romantic roles have been really deeply intertwined um, throughout the history of romantic love, um, or at least throughout the history of the social construction of the kind of script that we have right now. So, yeah. That's great. Thank you so much. Now, at the end of that chapter... The chapter says, changing love means changing our social world. 
So there's an entire chapter that looks at um, what needs to change that we won't have time to talk about in any detail, um, but I just want to mark um, for listeners, this is a chapter that in detail talks about issues uh, or really the way ancient gender stereotypes, as the chapter puts it, infuse modern love stories. And of course, as we've talked about, the nature of modern love stories actually has an impact in terms of how we think about and practice romantic love. Um, so this, ta- this chapter talks, among other things, about romantic gender stereotyping, heteronormativity, the normative conflation of love and marriage, um, and thinking and just assuming that monogamy um, is currently a central feature in the social role of romantic love. Okay, so then it moves us into chapter seven, which I want, I totally want to have another hour to talk about because this is a chapter that, among <laughs> other things, talks about um, the way love is medicalized. It talks about the association of love with disability and with addiction. Um, again, like names and labeling and the stories we tell about things matter. And you talk about the implications and the nature of these sorts of stuff. Uh, explanations and definitions. It also raises a question um, that I'm just going to put out there, a series of questions without necessarily having time to talk about them because these are fascinating. Um, Should medical interventions to encourage or suppress love be permitted? Should they be regulated? Would it devalue love to know that it had been artificially enhanced? This is a question that's raised earlier in the book and you come back to it here. These are fascinating questions. These are like when, when people use this book to teach, and I hope and I'm sure that they will, these are the kinds of questions that will animate a seminar discussion and that are really important um, to think about also just in terms of our lives. Okay. We're going to have to answer them soon. Right? I know, we are. Um, and these are super important questions. Um, so this chapter, though, also re- also makes a claim, um, a really important claim that um, follows up from this previous idea that changing love means changing our social world. The chapter said, despite what the romantic mystique would have us believe, we can change the nature of love. So, Carrie, mm-hmm. how? Can you, talk, can you talk a little bit about that? For you, what are some of the most, um, it, what are some of the ways we can change the nature of love? Yeah, good. So, I mean, this, to, to understand my take on this, I have to come back to my dualism. So, thinking about love as having the actor and script, the biology and the, the social norms, um, you can change the social norms by um, increasing representation of more than one story, more than one particular kind of love. Um, So, for example, we have done this to some extent with the inclusion of more representations of interracial love um, and um, non-hetero love as normal examples of romantic love, not uh, extra special weird examples, but just among the normal cases. That's how we expand the script for love. Um, We could do it if we wanted to by including more representations, more stories of non-monogamous love. But I don't see that very much right now. I see that very, very rarely. Um, and usually it is um, an extra special thing, right? That's that's what the story is about when you see it. Whereas um, with these other cases, um, you see them just included as in the background. By the way, also, this love is queer. Also, this love is between two people who've been racialized into different categories. With non-monogamous love, that change is still if at all, in the very early stages, if if it's happening at all. Um, So that's sort of at the social level. Um, We build the social script as a kind of composite image by overlaying more and more representations on top of each other. So to change it, we just overlay more and different representations. Um, One of the reasons I'm writing this book is to kind of encourage us to understand us being whoever wants to think about this with me, um, the kinds of power that we have collectively over the nature of the script, um, just by virtue of um, not any one individual, but all of us together, the sorts of stories that we tell and the sorts of stories that we consume. Um, that is actually creating a social reality, a social norm um, that's much more than just a fiction. Um, so sometimes people will say, well, you think love is a social construct, so you think it's made up. Um, and I say, well, sort of, but not like a fiction is made up, right? Like the law is made up. <laughs> it's real now because we've made it. Um, so that's all on the social side. It's it's real, but it's changeable. 
Um, biology is not changeable in the same way, right? We don't change ourselves biologically by telling different stories or altering our social norms. Um, but that's where we can ask questions about things like medical intervention. So what are we doing if, for example, we medicate women who are reporting long-term um, sexual dissatisfaction um, in order to try to promote them staying with a romantic partner that they're experiencing that dissatisfaction with? Um, what were we doing, say, in the 1960s by mass medicating women who were reporting unprecedented levels of anxiety and depression with tranquilizers to try to encourage them to stay in those situations, those um, often housewife roles that were making them feel that way. Um, so these are two of the issues that I raise with the, the questions around medication. Um, those aren't the only ones. And, and the issue with medication for me often has to do with under um, the underlying ideology behind the proposal to intervene biologically. Um, and this is something that actually goes way, way back to Ovid, <laughs> who's uh, the origin of the, the um, I'm sure not the ultimate origin, but one of the ancient origins of this idea that we can cure love. So he wrote a poem, it's literally called The Remedia Amoris, The Cure for Love. Um, and he proposed all kinds of remedies. Um, and his ideological underpinnings were really suspect. Um, and I think that's been true of a lot of the other proposed interventions as well. So one of the things I'm trying to do is say, be really careful, like really kind of alert, critically alert when you see these sorts of proposals, especially when they're being proposed as something that's going to help the most vulnerable people in these situations, because they may not be. That's right. And I think it's a really interesting um, an important thing to do to integrate this conversation into broader conversations, which again, we could talk about for another hour about um, the ways in which uh, medication defined any number of ways, right? What is a medicine? What is a drug? Um, the ways in which medications are used to urge or make individuals to conform to particular social roles, right? Mm -hmm. There's a whole conversation in there so <laughs> that we should have. Um, that's really, really important. Um, and so um, I'll mark that also for listeners who are particularly interested in that. There's a, you know, there are ways in which this part of the book really engages those really important conversations. Okay, so one of the things before um, we get to the very end of the book, we get to the coda, and one of the things that you talk about um, are concrete possibilities for how you see things potentially changing as we move forward and how you see things already changing, right, given your um, expertise here. You talk about one, one aspect of how we practice and think about and understand love as being particularly open to change having to do with the norm that, quote, everyone should have one true love forever, right? Um, and you talk about the sort of problems with this as a, a sustainable universal norm. So as a way to move us maybe to our conclusion, mm -hmm. since this does come up at the end, can you talk a little bit about that as we look forward? Yeah, so I mean, at at the very end there, I'm making predictions, which is always a hilariously stupid thing to do because all you have to do is sit around for a little while and be proven wrong, but at least no one can prove it wrong yet. So <laughs> it has that benefit. Um, so I make a little prediction there, which is, so we've got this one true love forever model, you know, the sort of Cinderella, Disneyfied fairy tale romance. Um, and the idea of that as a universal norm is obviously failing us in lots of ways. And one of the things that's happened is that we've really pretty much normalized at this point serial monogamy. So one true love, but maybe for part of forever, and then maybe a different one after that. Um, so that I see as probably the next kind of shift in our normals that will we'll move towards accepting that not just as a sort of failure state, but as an intended state. So this idea of um, even eventually moving to a renewable marriage contract where you say, hey, I'd like to be in a relationship of this marital kind with you for 10 years, and then we'll see, um, rather than till death do us part from 19 onwards, <laughs> when you still have potentially 80 more years or more um, of that relationship. Um, because 10 years is lo a long time, right, for people to to change and become um, entirely different than they were. I, I think of myself 10 years ago, you know, I, I, I don't recognize that person um, on some level. It's, yeah, very different. it's a very different person, right? So um, I can see 
that as one of the ways of releasing the pressure behind the one true love forever model. The other option is to um, modify the restriction to one. So in other words, be more accommodating of non-monogamy as, a, as an option for people in long-term relationships. Um, and I wish that we were going to choose that one, um, or at least yeah. a, a, among other things, that we were going to permit that kind of option to become more normal. Um, but I think at the moment I don't see that future as a done deal. Um, part of what I'm doing in writing this book is obviously trying to nudge things more in that direction. Um, not that there's anything wrong with the, the temporary um, uh, temporary romantic relationships <laughs> existing alongside, but the, the use of them as a way to prevent the normalization of non-monogamy um, is something that I'm concerned about, but that I also think is actually quite likely to happen. Um, because, and the part of the reason why I think that is because I've seen a similar phenomenon happening around the normalization of queer relationships, um, bringing them into the fold of mon monogamous marriage and then expecting the norm of monogamy to just simply extend and, and sweep them into its purview, um, leaving fewer people then to face the stigma of being outside of the norm um, by being non-monogamous. Um, so what that actually has done in some ways is reinforce the norm of monogamy, right? By saying, now it applies to you queer people as well as you straight people. Great. <laughs> um, and so I can, I can totally see the same sort of thing happening with, um, now it applies to you temporary people as well as you permanent people. Right. We're, we're all still good with that monogamy thing, right? right? And ultimately this comes back to the possession idea, right? The idea of renting rather than purchasing actually fits quite tidily with the possessive model of romantic relationships, whereas non-monogamy in many ways poses a threat and challenge to that. And I think this is one of the really, really deep and difficult to see ideological contours that underlies so many of the points I'm making in the book. But that idea that romantic love is ultimately about possession of another human being. And so... <laughs> Most of what I'm doing is a rejection of that idea. Rock on. <laughs> okay. So by um, as we come to the end of the book, we come to at least what I take to be the main take-home message. Think about love for yourself, right? This is not, not rocket science. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's not ultimately a book that's trying to say this is right, this is wrong, you should do this, you should do that. It's a book that is saying let's think about it for ourselves and really think. Um, so Carrie, now that we're at the conclusion of our conversation, and thank you for spending an hour at my kitchen table <laughs> talking about I would be so happy to spend so many hours. <laughs> I do. But given that I, I need to let you go to the rest of your Sunday, um, there's a lot that we haven't had a chance to talk about, obviously, right? We marked some of those moments, but not all of them. Is there anything else before we close that you'd like to put on the kitchen table for listeners? <laughs> um, Let's see. We didn't talk about Simone de Beauvoir, um, so That's we right. could pop her on the table Let's for just a second. So, um, she's another of the sort of um, moving parts in my, if you wanted to look at the sort of structure, the family tree leading to the existence of this book, she would be in it in some capacity. Um, she is someone who was very influential in getting onto the table the idea of gender as a social construct. Right? In The Second Sex, her most famous line is, one is not born but rather becomes a woman. And um, in so doing, she actually makes what I think is a really important move, but one that hasn't, I think, been given its full due yet, which is she mentions very specifically in one chapter the role of romantic stereotypes in the construction of the gender roles. Um, and so her chapter's called The Woman in Love, Flamboise. And it's, um, it's where she says things like, you know, we have these very differently defined expectations for the man in a romantic relationship and for the woman. Um, so that, for me, is a huge part of the picture in understanding the social construction of romantic love and its very intimate connections with gender, its very intimate connections with possession of another human. Um, she doesn't explicitly say but I think it's, it's there in potential in her work that romantic love is being constructed alongside gender. Um, in some cases, as part of the very same process, um, we're constructing, we're, by constructing gender, one of the things we're doing is constructing gendered romantic 
roles. Um, so she is actually looming very large behind all of this, especially actually in, in regards to her, her optimism that things can change for the better. Um, so she is unlike other feminist thinkers um, who want just to ditch the idea of romantic love because they see it as irrevocably bound up with damaging gender norms. The Beauvoir says it's salvageable. We could save it. We could change it if possible for um, even a man and a woman to meet as equals. Um, and she says that is possible. Um, then um, romantic love can become a source of joy, a source of life, um, rather than one of mortal peril. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> <laughs> so, Carrie, now that the book is out, um, and congratulations, it's, I you. hope it's obvious um, that I think this is an amazing and important book. Thank you so much. What are you working on now? What's current Now that the book has been published, what's currently mm -hmm. occupying you? Well, in addition to our um, very busy and awesome teaching schedule, um, mm -hmm. the main thing that I'm doing right now is actually um, the secondary stage of this book. So because it is a public-facing entity, um, it being out there, being published, is very far from the end of my involvement with it. Um, so my life since publication, and actually especially since Valentine's Day, um, has been... Um, uh, has involved a lot more high-profile visibility um, than I'm used to, and especially trying to um, engage media. So when journalists will ask me, can we talk to you about your work or about your book or what you think love is, um, I'm pretty much always saying yes right now, unless I really, really literally can't do it. Um, and that's become almost a second full-time job alongside my other full-time job. Um, so I do have some other research projects that are on the go, um, including actually a very interesting empirical study looking at people's attitudes to what love is and how you can tell when people are in love. Um, so we're actually surveying to try to find out how people will actually answer these questions. Um, mm -hmm. um, but that's a, you know, that's a kind of long-term ongoing project. Um, but right now, um, getting the book out there, being as willing as possible to talk about it, to engage with the world um, on this topic is kind of, is my job. It's a big part of my job. Well, thank you for taking time um, to talk with me today, Carrie. It's really been a pleasure and congratulations on an amazing book. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the New Books Network seminar. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time.